and welcome to the Energy Talk Podcast. My name is Lubumi Olajide. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. I hope you're all staying safe. The World Health Organization just declared the coronavirus a global pandemic. So I hope you're washing your hands and doing everything that is required to just keep yourself safe and not take any chances, basically. So today we're talking about island sustainability and we have our guest on to lead us into the topic. So this is going to be a topic where you might not be familiar with because it's about remote places and how they deal with their energy issues and uh, sustainability issues and also how they deal with the inflow of tourism and the effect it has on their environment so i really hope you learn a lot from this conversation and i look forward to hearing your feedback so uh let's jump right into it great so my name is james ellsmore um i'm from the uk originally but uh haven't lived in the uk for a few years now and i focus on small islands and sustainable development a large part of that is is energy um, islands in general have very high electricity costs and need kind of t- special tailored solutions, which we'll get into. Um, a lot of my work experience has been in the Caribbean, also in Scotland and the Pacific. Uh, so a wide variety of, of different islands in both developing and developed countries where I've seen various commonalities um, across them. And so my company, I'm director of Island Innovation, and we're a consulting company that uh, works on uh, various communications and market entry products for companies interested in these markets. Okay, um, so I'm curious, where, where exactly are you right now? So I'm actually in Buenos Aires right now, in Argentina, so not an island. <laughs> um, but I was originally uh, in South America uh, planning on attending the COP25 climate conference that was supposed to be in Chile. Um, I'd already been in South America for a month before that, and they moved the event to Madrid at the last minute due to some problems. So uh, I, I actually right now split my time uh, between um, the UK and different parts of, uh, of Latin America. Okay, that's really interesting. Very unfortunate about the COP, by the way. So uh, when was the last time you uh, visited, the, visited the UK? I should say visit because you don't technically live there anymore. Well, I, I, I kind of do, kind of don't. So I, I describe myself as a, as a digital nomad. I, I can basically live and work anywhere with an internet connection. So the last couple of years, I've been moving around a lot, moving to different places, uh, which is great because it gives me the flexibility to work with um, different companies and, and different projects. Uh, but I try and go back to the UK at least uh, once or twice a year. And normally when I'm there, it's for a longer period. So um, another question, how did you get into work with, um, with islands and developing uh, sustainably around projects like that? Because to move from the UK to uh, the digital nomad lifestyle you have right now, what was the uh, catalyst that led up to that uh, transition in your life? Or do you see it as a transition for you? Or that, as that, is that the way it's always been? Well, I, yeah, I guess I, I've always kind of thought like that. I've not been tied to one particular place and I love the flexibility the internet gives in terms of um, well I, I entered the energy sector first before I found out about islands so the interesting thing there is that with most island communities um, you tend to you don't have economies of scale you tend to be limited on what type of electricity generation you can use um, and so for, for a comparison in the Caribbean countries on average pay three to five times more per kilowatt hour of electricity than Americans will pay. So you're having this huge, huge cost difference. Um, and that's why I found Ireland's a really interesting place to learn about electricity um, and, and the energy systems. And so after kind of going into that, 
I realized that sustainable development in general is all connected. So you can connect the energy, the, the waste sector with the energy sector because many islands rely on burning waste as an electricity generation technique. Um, but you can't talk about waste without talking about tourism because tourism is one of the biggest generators of waste on many of these islands. And conversely, if you don't have good waste disposal, you can, your tourist industry can be damaged pretty quickly because people want nice, clean beaches. So all of these areas are very interconnected, agriculture, transportation, I could go on. Um, and, and for me, energy is one of the things at the core of that. Okay. So uh, what are the major factors do you think that contribute to the high cost of uh, electricity on these islands? Because I think geography, of course, plays a very large role because they can be exactly connected to the grid. A few months ago, I had a conversation with a guest from Indonesia. And basically, Indonesia is a country made up of different islands in different places, all interconnected. And it was telling me how difficult it was to extend the grids out to some places. So they might have to pay more or they might have to do without electricity or find alternatives. So in these communities where they have uh, the location problem, let's call it, what other contributing factors go into the high electricity cost? Yeah, and it, and it varies a lot. Um, so so obviously no island is, is the same. And if we're talking about a community of 500 people in Scotland, there's only so much you can compare that to Jamaica, which is 4 million people in the Caribbean. Um, but the commonalities between them are similar. So the economies of scale is one thing. Even even 4 million people um, is is still not huge in terms of an energy energy scale. It rules out traditionally cheaper methods like coal, like nuclear, um, which a lot of larger countries would would depend on. Um, the often, again, a country like Jamaica and, or other Caribbean islands that in general rely on import costs, they're paying a lot of money because they have to import um, the, the petroleum or the fuels from abroad, and that's an extra expense. Um, for very small islands, when we're talking a few hundred or a few thousand people, um, that, that can kind of rise astronomically. And so you see that in Scotland, the, the highest rates of energy poverty in the UK are in the Scottish islands because they pay up a premium for electricity. And so a lot of that comes down to policy. If you go to um, Greece, for example, another country with a lot of islands, people pay the same for their electricity, regardless of where in the country they live. So that means that the cost of electricity is not reflected in the generating cost. You might live on a small island with a few hundred people in Greece, but you'll still pay the same price as someone living in Athens. Um, and what that effectively means is the people in Athens or in, in the mainland cities are subsidizing the cost in these smaller places. France has a similar policy as well. So there's there's, there's hundreds of asterisks and loopholes and, and, and differences, but you see this trend in general. Now, the interesting thing is with the rise of, of renewable energy, that in, for many islands, again, Caribbean, where you have a lot of, su of sun, or Scotland, where you have a lot of wind, renewable energy provides a cost-effective uh, alternative. So often we think about renewables, we go straight to... Um, uh, climate change and carbon emissions. But in these cases, renewables are simply the cheapest option. And the advantage of things like solar and wind is that they can be done cost effectively on a small scale in the way that a centralized power plant cannot be. Okay, you said something very interesting that I want to highlight. You 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 basically said that uh, renewables not 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 every time 
is it uh, appropriate to just associate with uh, mitigating the effects of climate change, but it's just about it being a very good solution to a problem that's at end. And there's a similar situation here in sub-Saharan Africa, Nigeria, and most other African countries that are experiencing a low electrification rate is people live in rural communities that it's not practical that all the infrastructures do not exist for them for you to reach them with electricity. And we've seen a lot of companies and NGOs discover that they can set up microgrids with solar and wind and have these communities be independent in their own energy generation. So th- that is very, very interesting that this the same thing is reflected somewhere else. And it's not just as a, as a solution to climate change, but as a, a perfect solution to what these communities need. Um, so a lot of innovation has happened in the renewable energy space. Uh, prices have come down and people have gotten more creative with deployments. Um, what interesting projects have you been part of in the last few years that have kind of like reflected this change in the perception and deployment of renewable energy? Um, yeah, well, just to pick up on, on your point before I answer that question, um, one of my favorite companies is uh, MCOPA, M-K-O-P-A. Not sure if you've heard of them. They're really active in Kenya, and I think now they're active in Tanzania and some other East African countries, which is just a very simple um, battery and solar panel system that is enough to charge a couple of phones and uh, provide some light. And that's a really cost-effective way um, to bring uh, renewable to bring electricity to isolated areas that would be difficult to provide a grid connection to. So again, that's another example of using renewable energy. Um, we shouldn't confine ourselves to just associating renewable energy with, with climate change and, and carbon emission um, reduction. So, so in terms of projects that I've been involved with, um, I'm also on the board for an NGO called Solar Head of State, um, which is more actively involved in renewable energy projects. And so we've got a couple of interesting uh, projects. The, the, the name of that organization and the reason we, we do that is to um, promote solar energy uh, by getting it on government buildings. So we'll ask the government to install solar on uh, the White House or the Parliament or whatever, the, the Prime Minister's office, whatever the local equivalent uh, high-profile government building is. Um, we'll provide free panels and the government will provide the rest of that cost. And the idea is that by getting um, a, small, a small renewable energy installation on a really high-profile building, it can generate a lot of interest and buzz around renewables. And also having... Um, the government do that is a really good sign of endorsement. I think every ministry of energy in the world should have solar panels on its roof because you've got to practice what you preach and and, and show that. Um, And so last year we installed solar panels with the the government of Jamaica on the office of the prime minister. Um, We've done similar projects uh, with the government of St. Lucia and the Maldives. And uh, this year we're working with the Pacific Islands we have 12 projects where we'll be working with different Pacific Island countries um, to facilitate the installation of solar on government buildings. And that plays a dual role, as well as what I mentioned, the importance of that interest uh, locally into generating attention locally. Um, with these small island states, they're also very vulnerable to the risks of climate change. They're at sea level. They're very vulnerable to natural disasters. And so they want to lead by example. They want to say, okay, we understand that our emissions are pretty insignificant on the global level, but we still want to be at the forefront of renewable energy technology and demonstrate that it can be done so larger uh, polluting countries will will follow suit. That is actually very interesting because uh, 
you just said something that is very important in, in the general conversation, the global conversation about climate change is that uh, communities, uh, island communities like the ones you're working with, countries in um, many countries in Africa, um, they don't really have that much uh, when it comes to emissions. But when it comes to the effects, uh, they feel it, they feel it very, very closely. And one, one other uh interesting thing you said i'd like to highlight is just about raising the profile for renewable energy in these communities that you're in and do you feel like it's much easier since the island communities okay this this shouldn't be a broad statement that i'm making but they're they're much more connected than uh uh, a full-size country do you feel like it's much easier to uh connect with people on that front and make them uh spread the awareness easier for renewable energy and for issues like this or do you think it's just about the same or how do you feel the pulse on that issue well yes yes and no um i think smallness doesn't make things easier necessarily um if you're in a country where the entire country has a hundred thousand people the dynamic's very different because the chances are you might see the prime minister in the supermarket <laughs> when you go and do your shopping and 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 you probably, you know, your friend's cousin is the minister of whatever. So that changes the dynamics in terms of the government people relationships in in a certain sense. Um, I think I think the I don't know how much the smallness affects it. I think what does affect it is people seeing the high cost of, of electricity. And so when you're paying, as I said, three to five times more than your neighbor in in the US um, for a Caribbean country, you you see that and you get frustrated and you want alternative solutions. And so the governments that have really been championing renewable energy to say not only does it have all these great environmental benefits, but ultimately it will be cheaper for our country. And, um, you know, a lot of the island countries are spending anywhere from 10 to 40% of their GDP is leaving the country on fossil fuel imports. It's a huge amount of, of money is leaving these countries. And that applies to island countries in, in Africa as well as the Caribbean. Um, so, so all this money is leaving the country and it's a, it's a very big uh, cost. And so if you, can, if you can invest in something that keeps that money in the country, it has huge um, economic, uh, economic benefits overall. One aspect that I do think is interesting and I'm not sure if, you, if you've experienced this with any guests from, from um, any African countries. I've heard that some of these smaller scale um, kind of solar, in, in a way, has been damaging for the reputation of renewables in some countries. Because in some countries, people see solar energy as kind of the, the energy for the poor. And so they don't want to use it for themselves um, if they're from, say, a middle or, or richer family. Um, in, in the Caribbean, uh, I think it's a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, the, you don't necessarily have that effect as much. And part of what we're trying to do with um, getting solar on government buildings is just mainstream that. So people are seeing it in the day-to-day um, lives and it becomes normal because it's still a relatively new technology um, in some countries. Mm. Yes, it is, actually. Uh there are some guests that have shared that opinion. Um, sometimes when they go into communities and they bring uh, small solar home systems, people don't see it as uh, real electricity because they they see it as something just small and they feel like for them to be truly established in terms of uh, maybe aspirations is for them to have what real electricity is. Maybe that is from the grid or having a petrol generator or diesel generator because uh, for so long... The, the concept is still very, very new. So getting people to really trust this and to 
see it as something that is helping them sometimes it's a bit challenging but right now the conversation is changing a lot especially in uh in african countries lots of people if people are, are doing lots of work and educating these communities and getting them involved in the process of setting up because i think that's also a very important uh thing to note the more the communities feel included in the project the more they feel ownership of it and then it becomes more real to them but that's just something something that could just comes naturally to people and one other thing that I'd like to ask is, uh, you mentioned that most of these uh, island countries or, or islands in general, they rely on tourism to make up most of their uh, their income. And um, how has it affected them in in this uh, era where people travel more? And you being a digital nomad, being going to different places, I'm sure you see a lot of tourists in lots of the places you visit because I, I think there's always this uh, high interest in visiting islands in general and being on nice beaches to take Instagram pictures. So just about the effect from an ecological standpoint, how has the tourism industry been really affecting these islands? Yeah, well, tor- tourism is always a double-edged sword. Um, and again, we're making a lot of generalizations, but you kind of have to when you talk about islands because everyone is different, of course, and there's exceptions to every rule. But in general, whether they're in cold countries or warm countries, islands tend to have beautiful coastline, um, distinct cultures, etc., and a lot of things that are interesting to visitors in, in the Caribbean and, and other countries, Cape Verde, Mauritius, and Seychelles and Africa. Um, you, you have that sun, sand, and sea tourism traditionally. And on the one hand, you have the emissions coming from the, uh, the the flights, obviously, but then also a lot of the impacts on the ground from the waste, um, very high energy demand because these higher end tourists generally expect a lot of air conditioning, um, uh, the risks of, of local pollution and things. So, so you do have an increase in the environmental stress that's been put on by tourists, but conversely, at the same time, um, you these tourists are bringing in money, which is then paying and is being used to help fund environmental protection and local environmental projects. And so um, if that money is managed well and is kept in the local ecosystem, that can help fuel conservation and help protect the, the environment. And let's be honest, if, if you, the, the market is very competitive. So if your country, your island becomes known for having dirty beaches or destroyed coral reefs, people will stop coming there pretty quickly. So there's a there's a very good financial incentive there to keep your economy clean, to keep your environment clean. Um, and actually, in the last two years, we've seen almost all of the Caribbean islands, countries and territories ban plastic bags and polystyrene containers. It was a very rapid transition there because people saw the um, level of pollution that was coming from plastic bags and it's a relatively low-hanging fruits that's that's easy to solve one thing that is very interesting and i saw this as well when i started up the podcast because um at first i thought that okay i would just focus on energy issues uh oil and gas renewables uh nuclear wind or whatever and then the more i started to study those topics the more i realized how interconnected they are with other sustainability issues and environmental issues and as you said in the beginning of this interview it's very difficult to focus on one thing without being immediately drawn to another because they're they're just so interconnected and it's as you said uh waste is connected to tourism tourism is connected to the income and then that results to how they feel they should get their energy from and 
this is why um, the Sustainable Development Goals by the UN is so masterfully crafted. I'll give them credit for that because it just draws attention to seemingly separate goals that once you start looking into solutions to actually fixing them, you realize that it requires almost the same amount of social change in different areas, but it's it's coming all from the same place. And I think you particularly see that in islands because everything is smaller and more interconnected and it's easier to see those connections. And um, uh, when you're in a, when you have a limited land area, as is often the case, um, you can't avoid those problems. You know, you, you, in a large country, you can dig a big hole and throw your waste in it and kind of forget about it to an extent in a way that if you don't have a big land area, where is the waste going? So it's a lot more physically present, whether you burn it, whether you, um, however you dispose of it, you, you, you're, you're pressured to find a solution. And I think that's why my company is called Island Innovation, because it's taking this idea of constraints, that you have all these limitations from being on an island and turning that into, well, uh, necessity is the mother of invention. When you're forced to change, that drives innovation. And so that's why you're seeing some of the most cutting edge use of electricity and renewable energy is coming from islands. Because when you have, when you're paying an extortionate rate for your um, electricity bill, that's a, that's a good reason to find a solution that's cheaper. Same with waste same with other solutions. So it's about turning that on the head and thinking about drivers for, for innovation and, and why um, being in a small remote community can be a force. Uh, you, you can use that that pressure um, to, to showcase innovation. Hmm. Okay. And speaking of innovation, something really cool that you did uh, was the uh, Virtual Island Summit last year. So could you just talk about that and what that experience was like? Yeah, so we had 4,000 islanders from all over the world join virtually. And, you know, I'm going to address it right away because often people think of the idea of a virtual conference as being second best to an in-person conference. And I I get those limitations. You don't have the same face-to-face experience that you do when you meet someone in person. Um, But we we thought, well, actually, if we did an in-person conference, let's say it was was, uh, in Jamaica, because I've been talking about Jamaica a lot, of course, that's going to really bias the agenda and the people who can attend to that event. Um, in addition, the costs start to spiral quickly and you start excluding a lot of people because you have to charge a higher fee for the entrance. So part of the reason we wanted to do this conference um, was to make it as accessible as possible to anyone with an interest could join. You didn't need a, you didn't need a special, you didn't need to be able to afford it or afford the flights or anything. Um, and then also to be able to exchange as many ideas as possible. I mean, there were still some limitations. You have to have a decent internet connection, for example. Um, and then, of course, the third benefit was that you don't have all the emissions and environmental damage of flying 4,000 people across the world to be together in one place. But it meant that we could have a discussion, say, about electric vehicles or uh, sustainable waste production um, management or um, even journalism on islands and cultural preservation, things that are slightly further away from the sustainability angle. Um, and we could bring in, a, say, a speaker from Cape Verde, someone from Iceland, someone from Mauritius, and someone from Okinawa in Japan, four very, very different places that have certain things that bind them together. And we could share those experiences and say, okay, um, Mauritius does a really good job of X, uh, that's something that this other island has struggled with. W- what are the lessons that can be learned and shared 
from places facing similar challenges that maybe in the past, uh, just because of the, the cost and distance that they are separated by, um, have not had the chance to interact. And that was really rewarding. And we got a really good um, feedback from, from the participants. So we'll be launching another one. Our next one will be in September. And we're going to expand it a bit to include things like a virtual shark tank um, to, for solutions on, on some of these issues um, and also encourage people to hold local hubs where they take these global ideas and, and this kind of nebulous uh, discussion and then try and take those solutions to apply in their local community. Mm. Congratulations to you and your team for pulling that off because uh, when I read about that, I was like, this is really, really impressive. Uh, just the scale and the impact of that event is very, very commendable. Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, it was it was a bit of a learning curve um, and there were definitely things that we, we, we can improve on. But for our first event, we were so happy with how it went and uh, the feedback I was I almost wanted more criticism because I wanted to work out how to improve it. But everyone was so nice and positive about it. Uh, it was really rewarding. <laughs> so what were the major takeaways from you from that event? How, what was the, the key thing you learned? Not just about uh, event organizing and, uh, and uh, facilitating conferences, just about uh, people connecting with people from different parts of the world. Like, what was the major takeaway from you from that perspective? Um, I think there was, there was a, lot of, a lot of people who I, I've been very lucky that I've had the opportunity to travel to many of these places. Um, I've been able to work, to work in the Pacific, to work in the Caribbean, Scotland, and then travel to places like Cape Verde and Bermuda. So I, I've seen these very, very different places. And I've been, been lucky enough to be able to understand that through, through observation and, and, and meeting with people, how much there is in common. And I think other people that perhaps hadn't had that opportunity, um, that it, it, it they understood what I was trying to communicate of the level of um, of opportunity there to share experiences. I mean, we also run a Facebook group um, as part of Island Innovation in the newsletter. And we have 2,000 people there um, in the group that are posting about different things happening on their islands. And I think a really good example of the opportunity here is a couple of months ago, someone from Vanuatu posted in that group about an energy project that they were working on. Um, and and uh, how successful it had been. There was a reply on there from someone in Jamaica who said, oh, really excited to learn about this. We want to do this in Jamaica. And then someone in Scotland, in one of the Scottish islands, then commented and said, oh, we've done a similar thing in Scotland. This is how we did it. And so having those three places where those people would have been, uh, probably never had the chance to meet in person, can share information. I think we always tend to focus on the downsides of the internet and the negative impact it has on society. but that really kind of gave me hope for the, the opportunity there that I don't think we're quite grasping yet. That is fantastic. And you have had unique life experiences. Um, so just something that I'm personally curious about, because I, I think uh, growing as a person and evolving your, your cause as you go along, as you meet new people is something that's very, very important. So just personally, um, taking this step out of uh, your comfort zone, out of your home where you grew up and moving into unique places that are different every time and really casting yourself into the abyss of uh, whatever become. What has been your major life takeaway from that? Like what what life lessons keeps you on to the next location and to the next round of new people that you're meeting? What kind of mindset do you have when you decide to to move on and you just uh go into places that you've never been before like 
what motivates you to do those things? Wow, well, that's uh, that's a deep question. Let me think about that. Uh, I mean, I mean, I I love travel. I love to meet new people. Um, I love to 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 have that experiences of seeing um, how different people live their lives and and that. So I've been I'm I'm so blessed to have been able to travel so much and 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 have the opportunity to do that. And um, I think uh, there's a real motivation there, but also. I mean, I really believe in, in um, I'm, I'm lucky also to be able to do something that I think is contributing positively to the world. I really believe in the value of renewable energy and the need to protect our natural um, environment. And so I, f- f- in that sense, I, uh, yeah, I, 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 that, that's, I guess, a, a big motivation for me. And, and the fact that I'm able to do that is, uh, I, I feel very fortunate. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. I hope you learned quite a bit and you enjoyed it. If you did, please share with a colleague, a friend. Subscribe to us wherever you listen to the podcast. Give us a rating and a review. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. We post regularly on Twitter and on Instagram at The Energy Talk. It was a pleasure having James on with us this week. And we hope we can continue to make more exciting episodes. So if you're stuck at home during this period of the coronavirus outbreak, um, be sure to go over some of past episodes. I'm sure you'll find something else you'll like. If you want to learn more about sustainability, we've done episodes about sustainability in India and sustainability in South America. So you can catch up on those two episodes. You can find them in our inventory. So uh, this episode was produced by yours truly. Thank you so much for joining us for this week. And thank you so much to Jensen for the music in this episode. I hope you all have a wonderful day. And I'll see you all next week.